Hi, welcome to this week's episode. Tracy here, and I am really excited to share with you this week's conversation with Dr. Meghna Zad. Specifically, we're looking at uh, artificial sweetener use in pregnancy and later outcomes in, in infants and children. I think, though, it, this conversation, the research itself is fascinating. And, you know, so many parents worry about what they've done in pregnancy. What are the outcomes? What are the effects? And too often, I think we talk about it in really concrete terms, which scares a lot of parents. What I really liked about Dr. Azad's comments this week had to do with how nuanced these these findings are. And, you know, some of the ways in which we want to think about what we do and the potential effects as opposed to fear-mongering families um, who already have enough stress on their plates as is. So I think it's a really important conversation to be had more generally about, you know, health during pregnancy and how this can impact our offspring, but also the degree of nuance and the amount of factors that really go into these lifelong health behaviors. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. And here we go. My conversation with Dr. Megan Azad. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast with Tracy Castles, PhD. I am Tracy, and this week I am really excited to talk about something that a lot of pregnant people may question, which is the use of artificial sweetener use in pregnancy and how it impacts later child health. Now, joining me this week is Dr. Megan Azad, and if you don't know who she is, you really ought to, but I will bring you up to date on this. So Megan is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Child Health at the University of Manitoba. She holds a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Developmental Origins of Chronic Disease, and she co-directs the new Manitoba Interdisciplinary Lactation Centre. Her research program focuses on the role of infant nutrition and the microbiome in child growth, development, and resilience. She also co-leads the Manitoba site of the Child Cohort Study, which is one of the studies we'll be talking about today, which is a national pregnancy cohort following... 3,500 children to understand how early life experiences shape lifelong health. She is leading a clinical trial to improve matching procedures for preterm neonates receiving donor human milk and directing the new International Milk Composition Consortium. Her research is funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Canada Foundation for Innovation, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Dr. Azad serves on the International Society for Research in Human Milk and Lactation Executive Council and the joint U.S.-Canada Human Milk Composition in Initiative. Pardon me. She also was recently named one of Canada's 100 Most Powerful Women by the Women's Executive Network. So thank you very much for being here today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Tracy. It is quite the uh, CV you've got going there. Do you have time for anything else besides research? <laughs> well, I really love research, so it works out well. All right, perfect. So as I mentioned, today we are going to be talking about one of your many, many studies that you seem to have going on in your lab right now, which is about this artificial sweetener use in pregnancy. But before we even go there, I I'm curious, how did you even get into the research with maternal nutrition, infant feeding, human milk consumption, and these effects on infant lifelong health? Yeah, so it started um, 10 years ago now when I was starting my postdoc after finishing my PhD. 
which I had done actually on a totally different topic, um, cancer cell signaling. And I found that to be interesting, but I really wanted to do research that was a step closer to actual real life and human beings. Um, and so I got interested and did a few courses in epidemiology, which is the study of health in populations instead of you know, cells and mice. Um, and I really enjoyed that, um, the applicability of it. So for my postdoc, I was lucky to get connected with the child cohort study, um, which was just starting at the time. And so you mentioned this is a large national study of 3,500 families. Uh, we recruited when the mothers were pregnant back around 2010 um, with the goal of following um, these families as the children grew up to understand um, as a primary question, why some kids get allergies and asthma and others don't? And what are the factors early life, um, maybe even during pregnancy that influence um, those trajectories? And so um, some of the researchers involved in that study, uh, one of them had gotten funding to look at the microbiome of babies in the study. And so these are the bacteria that live in and on our bodies and primarily in the gut. Um, so she had some funding and I was lucky to join the team as a postdoc. So my initial job um, in that role was to look at the microbiome of these babies um, with the goal of understanding how the microbiome would help shape their health as they grew up. Um, but some of the babies were actually, we were still recruiting mothers at that time. So we knew we had a, several years to wait before all the babies would be born and some of them would get allergies. But meanwhile, um, we were collecting a diaper actually right at birth. Um, and then again, that three months and a year. So very quickly, we started collecting those fecal samples and we were able to start studying the microbiome, which at that time, 10 years ago, was a pretty hot, brand new topic. Um, at the time, I can remember asking people, you know, who's heard of the microbiome? And a few hands would go up. I think asking the same question today, everyone's heard of the microbiome, but it was really new and exciting at the time. So I spent a couple of years doing that. It was really exciting. Um, and we found, of course, that one of the major factors influencing the microbiome in early life is what a baby is eating, uh, because that's what their gut microbes are also eating. And so for a baby, the, the distinction is usually breastfed or formula fed. And so um, that was an interesting finding. And so I built on that in my new research program when I got my own faculty position in Manitoba. So that's where my interest came in breastfeeding and all the work I do on that front. Um, and then for the sweeteners, it was, um, you know, reading the microbiome literature, there was an interesting study that came out around that time where some researchers had given artificial sweeteners um, to mice. And they found that this was changing their microbiome and it was also um, making them become pre-diabetic. So it was messing with their metabolism. And so I read that study and thought it was really interesting and wondered firstly, well, what if those mice were pregnant? Um, would that have an impact on their offspring? Um, and the study had just looked at adult mice. It hadn't looked at pregnant mice. So that was a question that entered my mind. And then secondly, you know, does this translate to humans? Because we know mice are not humans. Um, and so I thought, I wonder if we've asked about sweeteners in the child study, because I have access to all this wonderful data in these thousands of humans. Um, and so I went and looked through, you know, these families have answered dozens of questionnaires um, hundreds of questionnaires since their children were born a decade ago. Um, and some of them did relate to nutrition. Um, and we had asked a little bit about artificial sweeteners and diet soda. And so I kind of dug through those data and was able to um, pretty quickly, because the data already existed, uh, find an association between maternal consumption of artificial sweeteners during pregnancy um, and the BMI or the body composition of the babies at a year of age. Um, and I think that's a great example of this study with so much information. You know, that wasn't the question on the mind of the researchers who designed the study. They were interested in asthma and allergy, 
Um, but we had the opportunity because we'd also been measuring the babies and their growth. Um, and this happened to be one of the hundreds of nutrition questions that we asked. Um, so that is how I got interested in the sweeteners. And I guess also from a personal standpoint, I used to be someone who put Splenda in my in my tea every day. And because um, I thought as a, you know, mathematically, it's zero calories. And so that must be good. Um, and so I guess there was a bit of personal interest, too. It's you say that and I have to admit I was horrified reading all this because I was a diet Pepsi addict for years. I mean, starting back in high school, I would I still had a friend that we would talk every day about how many we had that day and it would be obscene. I don't even want to share the number because that was not a healthy kind of habit going on. I'm sad to hear I didn't get to be part of the child cohort study because my daughter was born in 2010. So I was like right for the taking and she has allergies and we have all this. And I'm like, I'm so curious. What's going on? So it's awesome. But Vancouver didn't pick us up for that truck because there is an arm in Vancouver, isn't there? For there the child is, cohort yeah. study? Um, Vancouver, Edmonton, Winnipeg and Toronto. So yeah, too bad. there we go. I brought her into all the other studies, like at UBC, because I was a grad student, right? She did every kind of psych study that she was eligible for growing up. But this would have been very fascinating to do. So you kind of answered one of the questions about why artificial sweeteners for this. And going so going to your actual research, because there's a cluster of papers on this. And my first introduction to your work on this was this most recent paper on the microbiome and the effects there, which we'll get to. But my reading, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I've very well, well could be. But that generally, as you said, there's this association between maternal consumption of artificial sweeteners and later infant BMI obesity risk for obesity. And this mirrors what was previously found in rodent models, correct? Um, yes, almost. So yes, we find okay. this association between maternal consumption in pregnancy, and then infant body mass index. Um, and yeah, not a lot had been known in mouse models in rodents. Okay. Um, they had looked at, um, there was more research on cognitive outcomes of the offspring in mice. So um, if a mother was consuming a lot of sweeteners, then the offspring of those mothers, um, these mice would have like behavioral issues when they grew up. Uh, there was a little bit on body composition, um, but it was pretty unclear because often the, the dose of sweeteners they were giving to the mice were astronomical, like the equivalent of, you know, a hundred diet Pepsis in a day. So even you and your friends uh, in high school. We were just bad. I have to admit it may have been um, bad, but not that. Yeah. So there were, there were kind of hints, but there wasn't a lot known and we weren't sure how relevant it was. So um, that's why I did reach out to one of my colleagues at my research Institute who does mouse studies to say, you know, I've seen this in the child study cohort. Um, but of course there's many details that are missing in a human study. You can't control what the humans are eating. So I said, could we look at it in, in mice? And we did that in his lab, um, to really look importantly at a physiologically relevant dose. Um, also a lot of the studies had been done on aspartame because it's one of the most, um, popular artificial sweeteners, at least in the past, but now other ones are becoming used more frequently. So we included Splenda in our study with the mice, um, and did find that even at those physiologically relevant doses, there was an impact on the offspring. So really neat to see kind of um, findings be mirrored in humans and in rodents where you can control the experiments a little bit more rigidly. So what is, out of sheer curiosity, the physiologically relevant dosage? Just... Yeah, I think what we ended up giving, we tested kind of a low, medium and high, um, and the high was on the upper end of, I'd have to look maybe on the on 
on the edge of like 10 per day or something, which um, is pretty high, but not out of the realm of possibility for some people. Um, so yes, it was not on the outlandish, like nobody could ever possibly consume this amount, um, which was different from a lot of prior studies. And did you find with the rodent models that those different dosages had an effect? Like, was it, is it dose dependent really is what the question is? Yeah, I think, um, so we did find, we did this dose response study to look at the low, medium and high. Um, and we ended up not seeing much at the low amount. So we stuck with the medium high dose. Um, so I do think it's dose dependent. And in the child study too, we looked at, you know, there's a range of consumption and it was really in the high group, which for the child study was at least daily, um, was the high group because we didn't really track above that amount, how, how much more than daily. Um, so we didn't see too much for, you know, if you occasionally consume them a couple times a week, but it was really once you reach the threshold of every day, um, that we saw these associations coming through, which, uh, it's all relative, right? Like that's okay every day, but that would be me, right? Putting Splenda in my coffee every day, once a day. Um, so it's really not that much if it's your habit. And that's one of the things that has interested me about this research. Um, because when you look at human studies of artificial sweeteners, um, they often are looking at um, like what I would call acute exposures or short-term exposures. So for people who want to lose weight, is it effective to replace regular soda with diet soda? Um, and they follow people for a couple of months. But my question was more about, because I think that can be effective, especially for people with diabetes, like it may be a good way to wean yourself off the regular sugar beverages. But my question is, what about as a lifestyle for your entire life? Like what I was doing every day, putting it in my coffee, is that something that maybe isn't as harmless as we thought? So could you give us a bit more details about the methodology that you guys have used? You've mentioned it's a cohort study. I know you had stool samples, but because you've got such a, a broad range of questions you've looked at in terms of obesity as it's measured, the microbiome as it's been assessed um, through these stool samples. And you even mentioned the different ages of the kids, because it seems like you were collecting children in 2010, but then some weren't born. So was this information gleaned, you know, prior to even conception? Or is it, you know, retrospective analysis, all right. these things that go into to understanding the study methodology? Yeah, so the child study is a longitudinal observational study, meaning that we're following people over time. And we're also not intervening, we're not telling them to do anything differently or giving them any sort of treatment, we're just capturing um, what they do in their everyday lives. And so we did um, enroll during pregnancy. And at that time, um, the mothers completed a bunch of questionnaires about their um, home environment, their um, stress, and their diet was one of the things. So they filled out a food frequency questionnaire with a couple of hundred different items on it, um, asking, you know, on average, how often do you eat all sorts of different foods? Um, and so the ones that we used to address artificial sweeteners um, or non-nutritive sweeteners more correctly was, um, do you consume, there was a question, do you consume regular soda? How often? And do you consume diet soda and how often? And then there was a question about, um, do you drink coffee or tea? And, um, do you add sugar or do you add artificial sweeteners and how much and how often? So we combined those to look at con consumption of artificial sweeteners. Um, and I would um, be the first to acknowledge that that's not the most accurate way. Um, Certainly there are um, artificial sweeteners in many foods, um, you know, yogurts, dressings, ice creams, all sorts of things. So that wasn't captured. Um, and we also didn't ask in detail, you know, if you said, yes, I put artificial sweeteners in my coffee, like what kind? Um, because there are many different kinds. 
Um, so that's a limitation of this study in terms of addressing questions about sweeteners. Um, we are now, we're still following these families. So their kids are now, um, you know, eight to 10 years old. And we're asking um, now the kids if they're consuming sweeteners. And we're going into a lot more detail because we've become interested in it. So asking about sweeteners in foods, um, what types, you can now get artificially sweetened products um, that are sweetened with not only aspartame or sucralose, which is um, the specific name of Splenda, but also stevia, monk fruit, these um, sort of natural sources of sweeteners, um, which I think are perceived to be healthier and better, uh, but we don't really know yet, depends on the mechanisms at play. Um, so we're excited to be capturing uh, more detailed information about sweeteners as the study goes on. But yes, back then we had um, some pretty basic information, but enough to look and find some interesting patterns. And in terms of the findings that you've had more generally, so I want to go in because some of the studies seem to, you've gotten up in the research you've published up to about three years of age, correct? Is that? Yeah. It takes yeah. a while to and do the research. I mentioned they're now eight to 10, but yeah. So I know. But I think that's them. good for people to remember. It's always interesting because I see, you know, parental comments about, you know, struggling with research methodology because, oh, it's outdated now or, oh, this happened. But that's the natural pace of research as it goes. And you it's can't true. control yeah. that. Yeah, it's a good point because I mentioned stevia and monk fruit, but 10 years ago, those weren't around anyways. So it doesn't matter that we didn't ask about them. Um, but true, yeah. in terms of making it applicable today, it would be really interesting to know. Yeah. And of course, when you publish the data you're collecting now on eight to 10 year olds, there'll be like five new ones that you won't have actually accounted for. So <laughs> always catching yeah. up. Research takes time. We have to collect the data, clean the data, crunch the numbers, write the papers, get the papers reviewed. So it is a process for sure. Yeah. So, but one of the things I noticed in your papers at the one and three year age point that we have is that there were some differences in terms of certain effects that seem to be there at one versus three. Can you tell us what seems to be happening over this time frame with the risk for obesity and outcomes? Yeah, so at the one year time point, we saw that uh, babies born to mothers who were consuming the sweeteners on a daily basis um, had about a twofold increased risk of being overweight at a year of age compared to mothers who didn't consume um, these products at all. By three years, we saw a similar trend, but it had dipped below statistical significance. Um, and there are many reasons why that could be. I mean, one is that by the time children are three years old, they're now of course, eating their own foods, maybe they're eating sweeteners. They also, there are more factors at play, right? They know how much physical exercise do they get? Um, lots more in the picture. Um, so it becomes blurrier to find any one um, factor and its impact. Um, it could also be that the, you know, this is um, longer removed from the time they were exposed in utero. So definitely possible that some effects um, have a short-term effect that's visible, you know, soon after the baby is born, but kind of diminish over time. So either is possible. Um, and that was why I was really interested to do a mouse study where we could really control those factors um, tightly. And then also, you know, mice lifespans are shorter. So follow them into teenagehood um, in mouse years and see what was going on there and actually, um, you know, look at their adipose tissue and measure their um, fat composition, which is something we couldn't have done in the babies. So very complimentary work. So what were the findings with the mice? Can you elaborate on, you know, removing all these extra factors that influence human work? What were you able to determine about that composition with mice? Um, so, 
and before I say the, about the results in the mice, the other important thing in, in humans is this potential for confounding in an observational study. So this idea, is it the sweeteners that are actually having this impact or is it something different about moms who consume sweeteners that is having an impact, right? And you can um, make the leap, which is not a big one to make that, well, who, who are the moms consuming sweeteners? Very likely, and we showed this in our data, it's moms who are already overweight, who have diabetes, we know those are risk factors for children being overweight. So we we controlled for that as best we could in terms of adjusting for it. And it still seemed that after accounting for maternal obesity and diabetes, there still was this link between the sweetener consumption and um, the phenotypes in the offspring. But um, that said, you know, you can do all of the statistical adjustments, but um, the best would be to remove that entirely. And that's what we can do in the mice. Um, and so what we saw when we gave artificial sweeteners compared to regular sugar or just plain water to pregnant mice um, in the offspring, we saw a difference. It was mainly um, in the male mice. So we saw a sex difference, which is interesting. Um, and here we saw that male mice born to the mothers consuming artificial sweeteners um, had a higher body weight over time. And when we looked at their body composition, we can separate fat from muscle weight and it was really their fat tissue that was expanding and accounting for the obesity, um, which is not healthy. Um, and we also saw differences in their glucose metabolism and insulin um, secretion, which are factors that influence your metabolism and potentially predisposed to diabetes. So those are very concerning. Um, and we also were able to culture fat cells um, in a dish and look at what happened when we exposed them to sucralose um, and saw that the fat cells actually grew bigger. So more fat tissue and bigger fat cells contributing to more um, adiposity and obesity in those offspring. So when I'm thinking about where you're at with a human study and what you're saying about the mouse research, did you see you know, a, a trajectory with mice that might give you an idea as to what you've seen in an in humans and where it might go. So I'm just thinking, trying to explain myself a bit more clearly here, but you know, you have this, you had an effect at one, it's diminished a bit at three, but now with mice, you've looked into, as you said, you know, adolescence and stuff, was there a similar dip there or was it a continuous growth or is their time frame just not possible to test that? I never studied mice. I can't deal with that whole chopping up mice. It's not my thing. Um, but <laughs> I'm not sure how their time frame goes in terms of when you can look at these factors over their development, or is it just, you don't really get this three-year equivalent versus adolescence? Yeah, it's a bit difficult. I think, I mean, now that the kids are eight and we're seeing them back and we are um, for the first time doing a body composition analysis on the children before we just took their weight. So we wouldn't know if it's muscle weight or that weight. Um, but we do know that now at eight years. So I'm really interested to look uh, because sometimes you might not see an effect in the overall weight, which is what we've analyzed so far. But once you break it down into fat um, and muscle percentage, we might see something. So I think it's, um, I'm kind of not ready to draw conclusions yet to say, oh, the effect is gone after three years of age until we do those analyses. Um, and then kind of look back at what we saw in the mice. Okay. So in terms of this, I want to get back to the sex difference that you just talked about, because I find that fascinating. And I know, you know, sex differences emerge in so many areas. I think about, you know, human milk composition. We've seen sex differences with babies in terms of maternal milk composition, all this stuff. What do you think is the driving force behind this particular effect, at least in 
the mouse model? I mean, is there a reason why we should see, I mean, what's the, what's the hypothesized reason why you might see this in male mice, but not females? Yeah, really, it's fascinating to me too. I think um, sex differences right now are, you know, a hot topic. People are paying more attention to them. Um, I think for a long time, it seems crazy now that it's just a standard thing to do. But in the past, people just didn't look for them. They just assumed, you know, it's the same. We lump everyone together. Or in some cases, they would only study male mice, for example, because, oh, female mice have menstrual cycles and that's complicated. So let's just leave them out of the research. And same thing in humans, right? Which is <laughs> really a problem. Um, but now that we find them, you know, so it could be related to hormones. Um, males and females have different hormones. Did those hormones, you know, interact with the sweeteners or the metabolism of sweeteners or the gut bacteria that metabolize the sweeteners? Um, there are many possibilities that could relate back to hormones. And, you know, when I was looking at this in, in babies, like one-year-old infants, and I'm not an endocrinologist, so to me, I thought, well, you know, hormones make sense as an explanation for adults or teenagers going through puberty, but surely, like, tiny babies, like, this is not an issue. But actually, um, reading into it, uh, there's something they actually call, like, mini-puberty, um, and it happens in the first months of infancy where there are these um, surges of hormones that are different in male and female infants. So very well could be. Um, even in utero, like hormones are different. So it could be hormonal. It could also be behavioral. Um, so male and female infants um, have different suckling behaviors, consume different amounts of milk. Um, we haven't touched on it yet, but there is evidence that um, artificial sweeteners that mom is consuming get into milk. So we've been operating on the assumption that it's the exposure in utero in pregnancy that's important, but likely the same mothers who were consuming sweeteners while pregnant you know, probably kept consuming them after while breastfeeding. So um, is it the exposure through milk or in utero that's important or possibly both? Um, and and if it is something through lactation, um, lactation is different for, as you mentioned, um, male and female infants. So any of these things could be at play and definitely needs and warrants more research. I'm sorry, but I am stuck on this mini puberty. Can you, what are the hormone differences? I've never heard of this. This is totally new um, to me. What is yeah. going on for mini puberty? <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, I'm probably not the best person to explain it to you, but um, was fascinating to me when I, I was offhandedly commenting to an endocrinologist, like we see sex differences, but it's in babies. So it obviously isn't hormones. And she goes, no, no, there's mini puberty in in the first months of intensity. So there are these, you know, surges and surges relative. It's not as large as you will see in actual puberty later on. But yeah, there are surges that happen in hormones, even um, early in infancy. Wow, that is, I'm sorry, but that whole idea, you learn something new every day. And this is a big one. This feels huge. Um, I, I actually do. I love that you brought up the milk because that was a question I'd actually had about it is this idea of drinking these non-nutritive sweeteners and that idea of stopping. And I, I thought about it because you made me think about my son who, my daughter, I actually was pretty good about, I'd, I'd weaned my diet Pepsi addiction a little bit. Um, unfortunately with my son, I'd gone when I was pregnant, gone back and was probably having close to daily, um, but not lots, just like one. But I stopped when he was five days old. Um, the gas from it was very difficult for him. And it was, and then I went three years with absolutely nothing. And so I was wondering, you know, well, would that be enough of an effect to go on versus milk 
composition because we breastfed that he would be having some. So do you have, is there, is this just new research that's coming on or is there any data yet about what might be happening with respect to the milk, the the transference of these sweeteners through milk versus pregnancy? Yeah. So um, this is not work that I did, but um, Alison Silvetsky's group in the U S had the first paper um, only a couple years ago, so it is pretty new, about finding these different sweeteners um, or their metabolites in breast milk. Um, and it was interesting, and this it's similar to research that's been done to look at the sweeteners in urine or blood, where um, you bring in some research subjects, volunteers, ask them, do you consume artificial sweeteners? How often? Yes, no. Um, and then look for the metabolites um, or the products in their bodily fluids. And you know, not surprisingly, people who say, yes, I use them every day, you see higher levels. But what I find interesting is for the people who say, no, I never consume those, often find them um, in their milk, urine, blood. And, um, you know, I I don't think it's that these people are lying. I think it's that they are consuming them and don't realize because these are like pervasive in the food supply. They're in so many products that you might not realize. Um, and so I do think that the, the effects or associations are dose dependent. Um, and so if you're having a smaller amount, that probably isn't the same as having a larger known amount. But it's still there. And that's interesting to think about. Um, In terms of the effect through milk versus in utero, I think um, that would be the next step in the mouse research because we could control it there, right? Have mice who who get the sweeteners only in pregnancy, but not in lactation or vice versa, which is a hard thing to do with humans. Um, So that is something I'm interested in looking at further to understand. But I think your, your question brings a bigger point to mind, which when talking to um, new moms, like parents have guilt about so many things. So I also always like to be careful about that and, um, you know, reiterate that no one thing is going to be the cause of obesity, right? So, you know, we talk about different things that impact risk either up or down. Um, So this is one of them, but also mitigation. So um, we actually did find in, uh, because I was interested in the milk and it was around the study that uh, around the time the study came out about sweeteners in milk. So in that first study where we looked at the babies at one year of age, I looked specifically, okay, does it make a difference? Do we see this link whether or not the babies breastfeed? And I thought, you know, maybe we'd see a stronger link if they're breastfeeding because they're getting exposed even after they're born. Um, But actually what we saw was the opposite. So that link between sweeteners um, that the mom consumes and overweight in the infants was smaller if the mom breastfed. And so to me, I think that's probably showing that, yes, there might be a bit more exposure through milk, but actually what's more important is that the baby's getting breastfed because there are so many benefits to that. Um, And we know breastfeeding in general is linked with a lower risk of obesity um, for many reasons. It supports a healthy microbiome. It helps babies learn to regulate their appetite. Um, So I think all of those benefits uh, probably outweigh any potential exposure to the sweeteners in milk. Uh, would be my interpretation of that, although it's certainly kind of an indirect um, way of looking at the question. It's, you know, and I I have on here, I do want to talk a bit later on what the take-home message is for parents, because I think it is crucial to highlight these things, that these are not, and, you know, direct causal definite links between things. And it's something I talk a lot with people about that we're, we are talking about risk ratios and odds ratios and just, you know, it's, it doesn't speak to you and your particular situation. Everyone has a ton of different factors that go into all of this. But when you were talking about that with the milk, it really, it it hit home for me that look at the microbiome and that we know the effect of breast milk on the microbiome as well has a positive effect. I mean, I guess on diversity, I want to say 
positive there. It seems like the right word, although I guess it's differential effect. Yeah. But in terms of long-term health positive. So I I was thinking you had in one of your papers, Mm -hmm. there were the three kind of possible causal mechanisms between these links. And that is just, you've talked about all of them somewhat in detail here, the metabolism and the taste preferences, the hormone secretion, and also the alterations to the gut microbiota. Can we go into that gut paper a little bit here? Because I'm really, I admit a lot of what I read, these differences, I wasn't quite sure what they meant in terms of the the specific differences you found. Could you explain to everyone what was, so you looked at the artificial sweetener exposure in pregnancy, and then the infant gut microbiota at a combination, it seems, of three and 12 months of age? So um, having seen this link between the maternal artificial sweetener consumption and the infant body weight, um, you know, you see the association. The next question is how, what's the mechanism? And so, like you said, there are, you know, several hypotheses. And so as a next step, since one of the hypotheses was maybe it's changing the microbiome, you know, that was my original inspiration was that in mice, the sweeteners change the microbiome. So, um, and then knowing from our other research that moms pass their microbiome on to their babies during the birthing process. Could it be that these sweeteners are changing the mom's microbiome, which is then passed on to the babies and then alters their metabolism and their weight gain trajectories? Um, So to address that in the child study, because we had collected um, diapers, which we can use to look at the microbiome, I teamed up with um, Dr. Claire Arrieta at the University of Calgary, Um, who's a great colleague of mine and is interested in the microbiome. And so we um, got a research grant to look at that question. And so her lab um, looked at the microbiome of babies. We chose 100 babies, um, 50 of which were born to moms who never consumed sweeteners, and then 50 were born to those moms who consumed them daily um, and asked the question, can we see a difference in the baby's microbiome in these kind of two extreme groups? And we also looked at, we had collected urine samples. And so we looked at the metabolome of the urine, which is reflecting how the baby's metabolism is going and also how the gut microbes um, are doing metabolism in the baby because that's reflected. Um, And so looking at those two kind of biological outputs, um, we saw not huge differences in the microbiome of the babies who were and were not exposed to sweetener consumption by their mothers. You know, and when I say not huge, Comparing it to something like breast milk, which we've just mentioned is a huge driver of microbiome consum- um, development, we see really big differences according to breastfeeding. Um, compared to those breastfeeding related differences, we see relatively small effects from the artificial sweeteners, um, which probably makes sense. Like, I think it's a relatively minor exposure compared to like what the baby itself is eating. Um, but we did see a few, and actually, um, we had to. We had to dig pretty deep because we didn't see even these small effects in all the babies. It was only in certain babies that had a certain microbiome composition already. It seemed that the sweeteners made a difference to them. Um, so all of this just to say that the, the sweetener difference in the microbiome um, was there. We had to look pretty hard for it. Um, so I think there's probably more going on than just a microbiome as a pathway. But it does seem like there is something going on. And we actually saw stronger differences when we looked at the metabolome. So from the urine samples, we saw a couple of metabolites, a couple of chemicals in the urine of babies who were exposed to these higher levels of sweeteners um, compared to those that didn't. And so that might be reflecting a difference in the microbiome that then affects metabolism, or it could be reflecting the baby's own metabolism kind of independent of the microbiome is affected. 
So a couple of clues as to what might be going on, but I think it's probably a complex story. You mentioned taste preferences of possible mechanism. So that's something that um, wouldn't be reflected in any of these outputs I just described, but it's very possible that babies exposed in utero, um, these sweeteners also appear in amniotic fluid, which is what the baby consumes in utero, um, and then exposed in breast milk. Maybe those babies are developing you know, a taste for sweetness and sugar. Um, and maybe that's affecting their metabolism and their weight gain. So um, there could be a lot going on, but I do think there is a clue here that the microbiome and metabolism play some sort of role. So I have a couple questions from this because my mind goes to thinking first off about this idea of the taste. Um, and you mentioned before there were differences, the moderating difference of breastfeeding seemed to lower the risk. Do you think there's something about the natural sugars in breast milk versus the kind of artificial, I mean, they're not artificial sugars, but the, I don't even know, the, the difference in sugars, the human-made milk sugars versus the additive sugars that might go into formula that might be interacting with a potential taste preference to want more or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it even makes sense. From Yeah, it's really interesting. This, the science of taste preferences, which isn't my area of expertise, but I've read a little bit on, you know, through doing this research is really fascinating. Um, so if a baby is breastfed, then um, the food the mom's eating is basically flavoring her breast milk. So if she's eating a diet higher in added sugar or artificial sweeteners, um, that will be transmitted in her breast milk. Similarly, if she's eating more broccoli and carrots, like those taste flavors get into the breast milk and the infant develops a taste for those. Um, so that in itself is fascinating, I think, as opposed to um, formula, which is standard all the same all the time um, and doesn't have all of the other you know, variation in diet because moms are not eating the same thing all the time. But also, like you mentioned, the human made sugars, um, some of which are actually um, complex carbohydrates that the baby doesn't even digest. Um, but those are digested by the baby's gut microbes. And that is one of the things that um, is really missing from formula um, that's only found in breast milk. So um, very relevant to the microbiome from that sense. That's fascinating. Um, the other question I had was about that gut microbiome, you mentioned that there was only a cluster of children with a specific gut composition. Can you tell us a bit more about that gut composition? Is it, was it just particular elements or are these elements that are linked to other behaviors like vaginal birth versus C-section or breastfed versus formula, or were there relationships to other environmental or uh, experiential factors? Yeah, good question. I'm bringing it up in front of me, trying to think of a simple way to describe it. So basically, we um, we took all the 100 babies and actually 200 samples because we had a sample from three months and a year from each baby. Um, and we said, here are 200 samples. Um, computer, do you see any patterns? Um, and, you know, computer says back, yeah, I see about, I see four different groups here. Um, and so just looking at the data blind to anything else, there seem to be four different groups. And so not surprisingly, one of the groups was primarily um, the three-month-old babies, and another was primarily the one-year-old babies, um, or the samples at those time points, because the gut microbiome changes a whole lot in that span of time, as you can imagine. But then um, two groups in the middle kind of seemed to have a mix of these um, three- and one-year samples. And in some cases, they differed in things like breastfeeding or C-section, which are other things we know really influence the microbiome. Um, and it was one of those two middle groups where the sweeteners seemed to have a big impact. Um, so, 
you know, one way of interpreting that is it's babies who are a bit off track already, maybe from other exposures, could also be antibiotics um, that are susceptible to this like second hit of the sweeteners. Um, you know, there are many ways you can interpret the data and these are observational, but I think that's one way of thinking of it kind of if uh, if you if everything's gone sort of normally and right and you have this healthy normal microbiome, then maybe it's not so susceptible. But if you've already had disruption from other exposures, then adding the sweeteners on top of it is going to kind of tip it over the edge. Would you want to think of it? It kind of reminds me of the triple risk ah, ah, triple risk hypothesis with SIDS, where it's not just one event that goes on, it's, you know, you need to have a multitude of things going on at the same time, which makes sense from a biological perspective. I think there's very little that we can look at where there would just be one factor that is the determining force for it, that there has to be a lot to it. So in terms of these different ones, can you talk a little bit more just about the metabolic hormone secretion? Because that seemed, I, I admit my confusion here, because I think that was linked prior to the gut microbiota, but also as its own hypothesis. So how does that, what's the distinction between the hormones versus the microbiota and the way it might affect this relationship? Right. So when you think about hormones, um, the process of consuming um, food and calories and glucose in particular, which is a part of many foods, um, once when your body consumes glucose, a, it tastes sweet, so sugar tastes sweet, and so that will trigger your sweet taste receptors, like on your tongue. These sweet taste receptors also exist in your intestines, which is always funny to me because of the name of them. You're not tasting with your intestine, but um, these these receptors are in various tissues in your body, so the glucose binds to them, and then that triggers a cascade of um, hormone signaling that helps your body then realize, oh, I've just had sugar, I need to secrete insulin so I can absorb the sugar, so I can metabolize it, so I can store it as energy or I can use it to um, fuel my cells. Um, so when you have an, an artificial sweetener or a non-nutritive sweetener, your body still perceives that as sweet because it's still binding your sweet taste receptors. Um, and so some of those um, hormonal signals might still get kicked off, but then it's like confusing your body because wait a minute, I don't actually have any glucose to absorb and to metabolize. Um, so one of the, the hypotheses around the potential effects of artificial sweeteners um, is that even though you are not actually consuming calories, you're triggering some of these signaling cascades in your body um, and that's kind of altering your metabolism overall in the long term. And so that could equally okay. be happening with a fetus or a baby that's receiving them um, indirectly. That's interesting. I understand that now. That makes a lot more sense. So in terms of, I mean, you've looked at obesity specifically with these studies, and that has been kind of the outcome of interest so far. But you mentioned earlier that the first research on mice actually had to do with cognitive outcomes, correct? Mm -hmm. So yeah. do you perceive that there might be other outcomes outside of obesity that we just aren't able to grasp because of the nature, obviously, of this initial study only, you know, whenever you do a large scale study, like the child cohort study, you are not going to be able to go into depth with so many of these people. Everything. So there's only going to be certain things you can look at. Yeah, I think so. You know, when I first read that mouse microbiome study and wondered about what about pregnancy, pregnant mice and kind of searched that up, I did find some studies on cognitive outcomes. Um, and when I looked in human studies, 
Um, there was, again, very little about sweeteners in pregnancy, but the studies that existed um, were looking at uh, preterm birth as one outcome. So if moms are consuming these during pregnancy, were they more likely to deliver preterm? Um, and there were a couple about uh, wheezing and asthma in the offspring later on, um, which we do have data on in the child study. So it's something that, that we'd be able to explore. Um, but surprisingly, nothing about infant body composition, which to me seemed like the first obvious question, like sugars are related to obesity. So why wouldn't that be the first question? But it may be that those cohorts didn't have data on that, but they did have data on preterm birth. Um, and there was even one on now bone fracture, like yeah, broken arms, bone fractures to see if it was related to bone health. Um, so I do think there is potential for impact on other body systems, whether it's because obesity is related to those systems. Like, so taking asthma as an example, we know that obesity um, is a risk factor for asthma. So it could be a pathway in that sense, um, or could be completely independent of body composition. And maybe um, if it's affecting the microbiome, this could be affecting immune development, which could have impact on other outcomes. Um, we do actually have some data on behavior and cognitive outcomes in child. Um, so it's, it's on my to-do list, but that list is very long. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't actually analyzed it yet. We don't know the answer to that one because it did it for me, it struck that you're looking at the microbiome and the more we learn about the links, you know, to mood, to anxiety, depression, et cetera, to cognitive functioning, that the fact that you saw even just this, this little risk with this cohort, um, even if it was just a subset of the group, but also then the mouse research that did see alterations in the microbiome, that this leaves open a huge area for what people can expect there might be. And again, this goes to that hedging. This is not saying there will be. It's not saying it's definitely causal for all people. But given cert certain sets of circumstances, there may be larger effects that we might see with people there. What would be, sorry, just what would be your guess as to what else like, what would you look at next outside of this? I mean, if you get to redesign the study again and start looking at stuff, what are the other areas that you, because you have so much more information and knowledge in the background of this. So what would you expect to be looking for or would hope to look at next? Yeah, well, if I could design the study again or start a new one or start over, I mean, one thing I would do is for sure capture the, the exposure, the intake um, in more detail. So um, how much are moms consuming, exactly what types of sweeteners and what types of foods, what are they replacing, what are they, you know, replacing with these artificial sweeteners, um, and then also monitoring the children's own intake, so what are they feeding their children once they're old enough to be consuming beverages and foods, um, to really understand that better, and then in terms of the outcome, I do think the body composition is an important one, but I would be looking at, um, you know, other outcomes anything tied to the microbiome potentially, which seems to be almost everything. So you mentioned um, behavior, cognitive outcomes. Um, I think it is though important to keep this in the context of everything else. Um, and that's what's great about a study like child where we're not only asking about sweeteners or even only asking about nutrition, we're also looking at um, you know, cleaning chemicals in the home, outdoor air pollution, like you really wanna look at all these things in relation to each other um, is important, but what I think is is relevant to, to emphasize about sweeteners is, you know, you can look at something like breastfeeding, which is really important, um, but it's complicated. Not every mom can breastfeed. 
Um, you know, there are issues around that, or if they can, is it a trade-off? Does it mean they don't go back to work? There are so many spin-off effects, um, you know, or something like antibiotics, which we've been studying. And yes, it's good to avoid antibiotics if you don't need them, but sometimes you need antibiotics. Um, with sweeteners, it's different because actually we don't need sweeteners, right? We don't need to sweeten things. And so for myself, I mentioned I used to put Splenda in my tea every day because I just thought that was a harmless, like zero calorie, no consequence thing to do. Um, but now with this information, like I've stopped doing that and I didn't, I didn't put regular sugar either because I know that's not great for you. So instead I just don't have sweetener in my coffee. It took a while to get used to but no, I'm used to that. So like, that's a decision people could make to just not never eat anything sweet or never have any sugar, but, but you could kind of make those decisions. It's not something we actually need in any capacity. So I think knowing more about this um, is really relevant. And I actually got a chance to um, serve on a sort of task force advisory panel to um, with the Canadian Nutrition Society about the new um, guidelines for Canadian nutrition and also um, guidelines around marketing. Um, so what foods should be marketed or not marketed, especially to children? Um, and how do we make those decisions? How do we decide what's a healthy food versus not? And, you know, there were some interesting debates because people said, well, you know, sugar-free yogurt is healthy um, because it's sugar-free. And you go, well, but is it healthy to be putting all these sweeteners in and like making kids expect everything to be super sweet? So just lots of kind of interesting discussions around the, the impact of this work in the translation. With that translation question, um, I was thinking back, my brain sometimes goes back to things you say. So I feel bad that I'm taking you back a moment. But you mentioned, you know, we have the effect at one year with with the greater risk of obesity. And then in mice, what you saw was this greater tissue. So you talked about the body composition needing to look at the body composition later. What are, you know, I've read a lot about obesity in childhood and I guess my question comes down to what do we really know about the risks of obesity at a year? This idea of defining obesity at such a young age, is it clinically relevant? Is it something that parents should be concerned about? Yeah, so that is a great question and one that the reviewers asked us when we were publishing that paper. Um, and there actually is um, quite a lot of evidence from other research where they have tracked um, children over time, you know, from birth into later childhood and looking at how relevant is it, um, their body composition at a year of age. Um, and those studies where children are tracked do show, and we're now seeing the same thing in child now that the children are older, that actually being overweight at a year of age is quite strongly predictive of being overweight at three years and then five years and then later in life. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not one study that's followed for a whole lifespan because um, that's a pretty unusual data set. But there's evidence, for example, um, that people who are obese or overweight later in life, um, nearly 80% of them were already overweight before they even entered kindergarten. So I think that shows that that often, not always, of course, nothing applies to everyone, um, but often those trajectories do start very early in life um, and trace back even to infancy. Um, so it is relevant. Uh, Certainly, the longer it persists, uh, the more problematic that is. And I think what is important to also add here, and I'm going to ask you about the research in general, even though you've touched on it, is the kind of take-home messages for parents. Because again, having a child that is obese at one, it may be highly predictive, but it doesn't mean there's nothing you can do to change it. There are other protective factors and modifications. And even sometimes it just may not be predictive for your child. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important not to be um, fatalistic about, you know, you 
you had artificial sweeteners, your baby is doomed, or your baby is overweight at one year of age, they're destined for obesity. Um, neither of those is true. And I think the breastfeeding was a good example of that. So we saw if moms had consumed artificial sweetener, breastfeeding seemed to help mitigate that risk. Um, similarly, I think, you know, like you said, it's predictive, but it doesn't mean there's nothing you can do. Certainly there are many things after a baby turns one that are going to affect their health going forward. Um, and so it's important to take that, that larger picture um, in mind for sure. And so things related to healthy eating and diet and exercise and family routines and mental health are all very important. Perfect. Thank you so much, Megan. This has been absolutely fascinating for me and eye-opening. I learned something new. Like we even said about the mini puberty, I'm going to have to go look it up after this um, to see exactly what's going on at that point. So I, before we go, I am very curious if you could share a bit about some of the other studies you have going on in your lab, the other research that you have, because you have so many. I saw the list. It's like 12 different projects ongoing at the same time on a variety of topics that hopefully I can get you back to talk about some of the others as well. But what those projects are and also if there's opportunities for families in the Winnipeg area who might be interested in taking part in any of the ongoing research that you have. Sure. Yes. I'm always happy to talk about my research. How long do we have? Um, like you said, I as long as you want. <laughs> but yeah, so the child study is, is a big project that I'm involved in, which as I mentioned, is still going on. Uh, we aren't recruiting new families, but we continue to follow the ones we do have. And so it's been an interesting year for that because of course we were sort of partway through our nine year assessment when the pandemic hit and had to take a pause and then modify visits and do visits over Zoom. And we were excited. We have a, a grant from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research to study COVID in the child study. Um, so this is going to be very interesting. We're studying both um, infection. So we hope not too many, but expect that some families, um, parents, siblings, children will become infected. And so figuring out who those are and what increases the risk of infection or protects against it. We're in a pretty unique position to look at that since we have an entire lifetime of data on these children, including, you know, their microbiomes, their genetics and so on. Um, and then we're also studying um, just the, the impact on well-being of living through the pandemic, um, let alone the infection. So while only a few people I hope will be affected, um, everyone's living through the pandemic, uh, homeschool, activities canceled, all of these things. So we're capturing that and we'll be able to then see again, um, which families are more affected by the stress, which families are more resilient and what predicts that. Um, and so that's one of the studies ongoing right now. I also, um, you mentioned in the introduction, direct milk, the Manitoba Interdisciplinary Lactation Center. Um, that's something I'm really excited about. A lot of my research focuses on infant feeding and human milk composition which is just such a fascinating topic. Um, so we're excited to be um, establishing this research center where we're taking an interdisciplinary view. So we have people that are looking at um, the social aspects of breastfeeding and how society can support breastfeeding, um, what the social factors are that influence um, ability or choice to breastfeed. Um, and then we're also looking at the milk itself and the many interesting components in human milk and how they work um, and what they could be, uh, what they can teach us about um, human development and health. Um, that's one where families may be able to get involved. Not quite yet because um, we have been delayed in terms of launching our sample collections because of COVID. So we're waiting for things to settle down and open up a bit more. But at some point we will be inviting moms who are breastfeeding to contribute samples um, to help with research. 
Um, so those are some of the big projects going on. Um, the International Milk Composition Consortium is another one, um, also focused on milk, um, but in a more global context. So comparing the milk of women from different settings in the world. Um, and that's funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has been a really exciting ride over the last couple of years to develop something so huge um, uh, globally. Uh, again, been an interesting year with some delays related to COVID, but um, overall still moving forward, which is, is really exciting. Um, so yeah, those are some of the big projects and then there are many more um, tangents related to those topics. So for people that obviously if you're in the Winnipeg area, it's easier to come in to do studies directly with your lab, but mm -hmm. thinking about people perhaps more internationally with the um, Global Milk Consortium, is there, are, are there other locations that they could get in touch with if they were interested in taking part in that type of study of having their milk taken in and analyzed? Um, so at the moment, that study is um, limited to four specific areas where there are already um, nutrition supplement trials going on. We're kind of piggybacking on them to get milk. Um, but I view this and milk really as just the beginning. So it is my vision that in the future we'll expand to other locations. Um, and I think if this year has taught me anything, it's that... Um, geography is not really such a boundary as I thought it was before, right? Um, I've hired people onto my team in the last year who don't even live in Canada and I've never met in person and who knows if I ever will, but I see them on Zoom every day and it's great. Um, and so I think the same thing could happen with the projects we're doing and the people that we um, recruit to participate in them. So if people are looking for you, is the best spot your lab website if they want to find out more? Yeah, so it's azadlab.ca. Um, you can find there how to connect with this. I'm on Twitter as well. I think that's how you yes. found me. <laughs> yeah. I've been following her for Twitter. You should. If you're on Twitter, you have to follow Megan because she has amazing <laughs> research shares, findings, everything. It's absolutely worth the follow. Great. Well, thanks for the plug. Um, yeah, it was great to connect with you on there. And I look forward to maybe hearing from some of your listeners. Yes. Well, thank you so much for all of this again. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this because it is fascinating research and it is, I just love the way you have analytically started going down every path. It's not just, you know, unlike some studies where it's one study and you just get the findings and then you hope someone else follows up. I love that you really seem to be digging in to really complete the entire picture here for people. So it's, I know it's a long haul and uh, there's so much more to look at and I appreciate that, but I appreciate you taking the time to share this with us today. Yeah, it's definitely a lifelong commitment, but I think um, I'm pretty lucky to be able to to do this fun stuff as a career. And um, I definitely need to give a shout out to um, all the research participants. So from the child study in particular, they've been really dedicated for many years, um, but also the many um, colleagues that I work with. I mentioned Claire Arietta on the microbiome paper, um, but there are so many more, you know, over 40 researchers involved in the child study uh, my own lab, I have over a dozen people who are fantastic um, and I couldn't do any of this work without them. So a big shout out to all my trainees and um, colleagues who I have the pleasure of working with. Well, thank you again. And I do recommend everyone, please go check out Megan's work. It is incredible. And I look forward to seeing what you come up with next. And thank you once again for sharing your expertise with us today.
That is it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed speaking to Dr. Azad. Please do check out her uh, lab page. There's so much there on the many different projects she's running. And I do hope to get her back on to talk more about some of these other projects, specifically ones on breastfeeding. You can also see in the show notes the different articles that we have been talking about. So you can check those out yourselves. And come back next week for a interesting discussion, I think, on how anxiety plays into sleep training or controlled crying more generally. So that is coming up next week, and I hope to have you back then. In the meantime, if you feel like leaving a review on the podcast, if you've been enjoying what you're listening to, please feel free to do that wherever you get your podcasts. And that is it, and happy parenting.